What up? Yo, that church beat goes kind of hard. I don't know about you, but our intern made that, so shout out Dylan. Uh, my name's, yeah, <laughs> my name's Brendan. I am so pumped to be with you tonight. I am excited to bring you the word of God. And to start that, we are in week three of Framework. And so if you don't really know what sermon series are, like sometimes we just assume that it's like everybody understands what's going on here. But we do sermon series here at Oasis. So we're going to take one message or one idea and stretch it over multiple weeks because Ben and I just don't know how to stop talking about something. Pretty much what happens. So we could have done all of this in one like two-hour message, but nobody wants to sit through that. So instead, we broke it into four weeks and we are in part three. But don't worry, don't panic. If you missed parts one and two, you can always find those on our YouTube or our podcast, but you don't need that necessarily to get in with us tonight, which is what I think is kind of the beauty of how we do it. And so when I'm diving into week three of framework, the core of it still is it's a discipleship series. Nothing's changed there. So if you're a note taker, if you want to take a picture of the screen because you can't write fast enough, or if you're a phone person, I am doing the same point we've done three weeks in a row because I need you to understand what discipleship is. So go ahead and throw it up there. But discipleship is being spiritually formed into the image of Christ for the glory of God and the good of others. I'll say it one more time. Discipleship, it's being spiritually formed into the image of, God, of Christ for the glory of God and the good of others. So now you're all going to say, it. no, I'm not just playing. We're not going to do the whole repeat back and forth. But I need you to know it. Because if you don't understand what we're talking about when we say discipleship, you're going to get drastically lost in this series. Because the first week I talked about Jesus and that whole guy and what he did and why it matters for us. And then the next week, Ben, last week, when like none of you were here because you all decided Labor Day somehow let you skip church, you all, all went home. I'm just playing. Everybody chills. Like the pastor's on one tonight. But you all left. There's a, a good amount of you here, but not all of you. And Ben preached literally such a good message. Honestly, it convicted and encouraged me in faith. And he talked about what it looks like to personally follow Jesus. Because when you throw up that, uh, what is it, an upside down pyramid, um, when you put it up there, we're talking about discipleship as a holistic process. Like discipleship for us is not just one piece it's not just you across the table for someone else. Discipleship is an entire process where you convey a whole bunch of different relationships all to be spiritually formed into the image of Christ. So Ben hit private. What does it look like to privately follow Jesus and be spiritually formed into the image of Christ? And he talked about how it was so, so important to view relationship with God not as something where I'm getting from something from God, but I'm also not doing something for God. He doesn't need that. But I'm also not above God and I'm not below God. And that leaves us with one option to rightly view our purpose and our identity with Christ. It's that we seek to exist in communion with God. It's all about life with God. And so there, there's a little synopsis of what he crushed last week. So if you need to hear it because you weren't here, please do. Honestly, it radically changed some things in my own personal pursuit of Jesus. But I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to hit the next two, which is personal and communal. And I have poorly titled this sermon because I am not the greatest at creativity and some things like that. Called it PC Discipleship. And Jana, like, leaned over to me, and she's like, you doing politically correct discipleship? And I was like, no, no, it's personal communal. But now maybe you all remember because Brennan preached on personally or politically correct discipleship. And to do this, to talk about personal and communal discipleship, the two middle pieces of our upside-down pyramid. 
I need to tell you about my chef skills. Because I would consider myself an average chef. I don't know. Like, I can cook if you give me a recipe card. Like, I'm not getting in there and just like, all of a sudden going to whip something up. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, you're going to get ramen noodles if that's what you leave me. But if you give me a recipe card and it's going to have all of the ingredients and it's going to tell me how much of, like, you need a tablespoon or a teaspoon and, like, all of that. Like, I don't want no pinch of something or, like, a dash or, like, what is a dash? Nobody knows. Give me the exact what it's supposed to go in the dish and I promise I won't ruin it. I'll turn the oven on. I'll make the dish. I'll put it in. Like, I will not ruin that. I hope. But... What I do sometimes stress out about is when I have to cook alone, because I'm married and my wife often helps me cook. We'd like to do it together because we're both average cooks, like nobody's just whipping it up in our, our kitchen. If you ever come over for dinner, like you're getting something normal, like you're not getting some fancy cuisine stuff. It's not a five-star restaurant at the Schmidt's house. But we cook together a lot of times. And when she's not there, I'm stuck to cook alone. And some of you, when you think, I want you to picture like a cooking show. And so when you're picturing a cooking show, maybe you picture like Rachel Ray. She's like behind the counter. There's probably like calm music. She's relaxed. She puts something in the oven and somehow 20 seconds later, she pulls it out done. And it's like, it's a miracle. It's amazing. It's like so relaxing. It's like Bob Ross of cooking. That's not what it's like when I'm in the kitchen by myself. Now switch your TV show to like Chopped or Hell's Kitchen. Like, that's me. The intense music is playing. The countdown, it's like 10, 9, 8. They're sprinting around. They're sweating. There's fires going on. The the judges are already going to destroy everything they've cooked. That's me cooking alone. Like, if I was going to tell you about an experience of making tacos, you would think, how can you you stress out over tacos? But you've got to cook the beef. And for me, I've got to have a couple, couple beans and probably have some veggies. You're going to cook the lettuce, or you got to cut the lettuce, and you've got to cook the rice, and you've got to preheat the oven and work on the stove, and the microwave is dinging, and I am stressed out, people. Like, I'm freaking out over tacos. And I've got to set the table, and I want it ready before my wife gets home or whoever's coming over. And it's stressful for me to cook alone. And as much as I'd love to just tell you about my average cooking skills, I think this has some application for us tonight. Because when I cook alone... There's too much going on for me to handle it alone. I mean, someone has to get it out of the microwave. Someone has to stir the ground beef. Someone has to do these things. And it stresses me out, and I feel anxious, and I feel overwhelmed, and it takes me like half the meal to calm down to finally engage in a decent conversation because I'm still thinking I forgot something in the oven. But when we look at life, to be honest, I think me cooking alone resembles a lot of our lives where there's too much going on because we have school and work and relationships and friends and and a whole bunch of stuff and we've got personal and we've got all of these expectations, all of these things we feel like we need to get done and we get overwhelmed and we get overworked and we get tired and we get burnt out, we get anxious and then we just, we're running through life but we never catch up. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just talking to myself when I say stuff like that. But maybe it is you. Maybe that's how you functioned in life. That it's thing after thing after thing and obligation and class and work and class and work and obligation and I got to see this friend and I got to call that friend and I missed that phone call and I have to respond to that email and it's constant and we're tired and we're overwhelmed and we just keep trying to do it alone. And I don't want to go back against what Ben said last week because that is a piece of discipleship. But we cannot have real Christian discipleship outside of community. It can't happen. We end up like chopped 
or hell's kitchen. And yes, I can say hell, it's in the Bible. And discipleship, it just, it just can't happen alone because when we're doing real Christianity, do you know where the term Christian comes from? If you were to read through Acts, which is one of the books in the New Testament, you would see that the term Christian comes from people who labeled them that in Antioch. And they labeled them Christians because they were watching their life and they were watching the church and they were seeing what was going on and they said, these are a bunch of little Jesuses. That's what Christian means, little Christ. And they were mimicking and following Jesus so closely that they got labeled miniature versions of him. So when today we, we try to live a Christian life, our life should look like that of Jesus's. We're many Christians following so closely in his footsteps that the world looks at us and says, that looks like Jesus. And when we look at faith, Ben constantly says it. Our faith is not an individual one. It's a communal one. That you and I, when we do faith, we're supposed to do it together. And so when I look at the life of Jesus, I see Jesus model personal and communal discipleship. I see him do both, and I see him do them both perfectly. I hope tonight we can leave attempting both. And the first one I want to talk about is I want to talk about communal discipleship. For the rest of the message, I'll probably refer to this as small groups. And it's like one long plug for small groups. So get ready. If you're not in one, this one's for you. But small groups. Jesus, believe it or not, participated in a small group. Probably wasn't led by one of our leaders. Probably wasn't affiliated with Oasis. But he was in a small group. Maybe it was Nabs. I don't know. Jesus was in a small group. Because it was him and 12 people who lived life together who learned and studied the word together, who did ministry together, who processed everything. So Jesus was in a small group. So let's look a little closer at what they actually did when they were together. The first thing Jesus did when he was with his disciples in his small group doing communal discipleship is he taught them. Consistently, he would teach them things. They would learn together what it looked like to be a Christian, what it looked like to follow in God's will. And one of the times that I want us to look at when Jesus would teach them would be Matthew 24. Because this is, an, honestly, a pretty interesting account, if you, if you ask me. Because the 12 pull up to Jesus, and they just ask him a question. They really want to know what the end time is going to look like. Like, to me, that's a pretty insightful question. Like, maybe today, you were thinking just like, hey, what's the end time? You were sitting on your couch, and like, man, I wonder what the end of the world's going to look like. Like, that's what most of us think. Oh, okay, just me. Just the pastor thing. But... They ask the question, what's the end time look like? And Jesus responds, and he honestly doesn't quite answer the way they wish he would because he doesn't really know the time and he doesn't know the day, but he gives them a couple signs, and so he answers their question. But also in Mark 4, Jesus answers another one of their questions because in Mark 4, Jesus has just finished teaching a parable. And if you don't know what a parable is, it was when he would tell this really confusing story in order for them to learn something from it, but a lot of times it was a really confusing story so that they wouldn't learn something from it. So after telling this parable about seeds and farming, the disciples pull up and they're like, what was that about? Like, Brennan version, they said, we don't get it. What did you just teach? And he explains and reveals the truth of the parable to them privately in their discipleship group. But then he continues, and in Luke 9, he calls all the disciples again to himself. 
And when he's calling them all together, he pairs them in twos and he sends them out to do ministry. But before he sends them out to do ministry from their small group, he equips them with practical advice and what they should do when they go out into the mission field. And when I look at what Jesus is doing here with his group of disciples, I cannot help but be struck that that looks like the Oasis groups. It does. It looks like the Oasis groups. Matthew 24, when they ask a question, they say, hey, we'd like to know about the end times. That's a topical study. Some of our groups, out of the 21, some of them are topical studies where you, you get to come to the group and have input on what we're going to talk about that night. So you might pull up and you might be thinking like me, hey, we'd like to discuss the end times. Your leader might freak out because they're like, I have no idea what's going to happen at the end of the world. But you can ask that question. Or you could pull up and you can ask what all of you are probably always thinking about all the time, and it's not the end times. You want to ask about like dating or something. You're like, oh, I've got this girl or this guy, and they're like kind of cute, and, but they're like really not a Christian, but like I'm hoping if I date them, they'll be a Christian. And so you want to talk about dating at groups. That's cool. That's a topical study. Jesus led a topical study. Or you might show up to one of our groups and they're going to be doing traditional Bible study. And they're actually going to sit around a table and they're going to open their Bibles. It's incredible. It's honestly mind-blowing that like people will sit around the table and they'll just open the Word of God. And someone's like, okay, well, what are we doing today? Well, we're going to read the Bible. And everybody's like, what? We're going to actually, that's what you guys do here? Well, this is weird. People actually read this thing? It's so old. But legit, people sit there and they sit around a table and they read the Word of God. And they study it together. And they ask questions. And oftentimes I'll have someone ask like, hey, how do you like, how do you learn more about the Bible? And they ask me as a pastor because they see me stand on stage. And yes, I'm in seminary. And yes, I've been trained by, by certain people. And yes, like I have read and I spend time in the Word of God. But where I first got my roots in the Word of God it was in a small group. I sat around a table with a bunch of other dudes and we opened up the Bible. And we studied it. And Jesus did that. He taught them parables. And then he would explain his very own words back to them. Isn't that what we're doing? Or... We just learn what it looks like to be Christians. I hope every one of our groups does this. That when we show up, we sit around these tables or we sit in living rooms and we just learn what it looks like to practically live out Christianity. We all need that. We need the help. We don't always get it right. We struggle, but we need to learn how to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And we can do that in small groups. Malcolm Gladwell is this author who wrote The Tipping Point. Super famous dude. He says, if you want to bring about a fundamental change in behavior or beliefs, you need, you need to create a community around people where they can practice and express those beliefs and behaviors. That's small group. Jesus could have taught to thousands. He could have stood on the mountainside and literally day after day, crowds would come to him and he could have just taught them. He could have just spoke every day for three years and imagine how many people he could have reached. Thousands, thousands of people would come to him from everywhere, all around. They'd walk, they'd travel. He could have done that, but he didn't all the time. He took a group of 12 and he pulled away from the crowds and he'd teach them and they learned together. And through that, they got a width of knowledge that is unlike what they could have gotten anywhere else. And there's a second thing that we do in small groups because Jesus did it in small groups. And it's we live together. And now you're thinking like cohabitation or like you have to have small group with your roommates. It's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about you live together, 
I'm talking about you do life together. Jesus, yes, actually lived with these 12 guys for three years, 98% of the time. They traveled together, they ate together, they laughed together, they cried together, they did miracles and ministry together constantly for like three whole years. They pretty much never left each other's side. That's not what I expect of you. That's a little creepy. That's super weird. I don't want to do that. Like, I love my wife, but I need a little break every once in a while. Am I right? But that's okay. She knows. See, I'm kidding. You'll hear the Spain stories eventually. But there was an invitation for Jesus to do life with his discipleship, with his, with his disciples. They invited each other into their lives to actually live together. So I'll have people come to me or they'll fill out connection cards or we'll just hear through, through hearsay that there's lonely people in here tonight. Like, I hope I'm not shattering anybody's like mind when I say that. Like, we live in a broken, hard, tough world. And so tonight there's lonely people. You could be sitting right next to someone who feels lonely tonight. And they feel lonely this last week. And on Friday and Saturday, they maybe didn't feel like they had someone they could call just to hang out. Or on Tuesday night, someone to watch The Bachelor with. Or on Sunday, dudes or girls, sorry, don't want to be sexist, watch football. There's lonely people here. I've been there. Our small groups provide an opportunity like Jesus did to live life together. But you have to show up, you have to invest, and you have to be a little bold. If you slide in right at the beginning of the group and slide out without saying anything, that's not community. That's you box checking. And I hope you still get something in that hour, but community and life together, small groups like this, communal discipleship, it happens when we're bold and we invite people in and we share meals and we laugh and we cry and there's just life lived in community. But Jesus didn't actually stop there. Because he could have, he had his 12, there was this gang of boys he was rolling with everywhere he went, but he didn't stop there. He actually took from those 12, he picked three. And when Jesus picked his three, he created a band. And I know, I do the same thing, when you hear the word Jesus making a band, you think, what instrument did Jesus play? Well, let me tell you, today I was practicing and I had that same question. So I googled it because I know there's some wacko out there who's done a, something and lo and behold, there was a Reddit stream. <laughs> if you've ever been on Reddit, like God bless Reddit, it is incredible. Eight years ago, someone asked the question, if Jesus came back today, what band, what, what would his band be called? And there was 48 responses and I picked four because I couldn't not share these with you. From Reddit, if Jesus came back and he wanted to do hip hop, he would have been the real JC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Jesus would have came back and he would have chose to do pop, he would have been three nails, two boards, four given. If he would have done rock, this one's my favorite, he would have been the Rolling Stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if for some reason Jesus came back in this Reddit stream and he was confused as all get out and he did EDM, Jesus would have been DJ CJ in the Heavenly Three. <laughs> And so, yeah, that's Reddit for you. If you've never been on it, it's pretty much all just that. And what I want you to think is not a musical band, like Jesus isn't pulling out his fiddle with the guys, but rather I want you to think a band in a different definition. And for us, a band works best when we view it as a group of two to five people who have a common interest together, 
who are being strengthened through their community. So up here I have, well, I actually have multiple rubber bands because I don't, they always break. So I've got a rubber band. And I have a little Jenga block courtesy of our kids' ministry. So we'll name the Jenga block Bob. Everybody cool with that? Everybody say hello to Bob. All right. Bob the Jenga block is a Christian. But it's been tough for Bob. And he's been trying to live life. He has. He's been earnestly seeking after Jesus. But he just got news that like one of his family members passed away. And that really hurt Bob. But eventually he maybe got up and he got over it. But there's also a sin in Bob's life that he would really, really, really like to get past. Maybe for him it was pornography. And he just couldn't get away from the device or from the screen. Or for him it was pride. In every room he walked in, he didn't think about how he could love others, but he thought about how others could love him and how they viewed him. Or maybe it was selfishness. And everyone around him tasted and felt the burden of his selfishness. And so Bob, he he knew it. He'd been to church, he'd heard the message, and he really wanted to get over it. But he did not have the strength on his own to move from here to there. And so Bob stayed put. And here's where bands come in. Because Bob, he does a small group. And from his small group, he's able to recognize that there are actually three other people who are kind of like him. And he gets along with them really well. And they actually develop a friendship and and they decide they're going to get coffee one week. Just the four of them. And the four of them make coffee one week into coffee every week. And they decide, hey, we'd like to be really intentional with this. We don't want this to just be a coffee date where I'm swiping my card and wasting $12 at Starbucks every week but I would rather have this be something that really helps me grow spiritually. So they form a band and they play jazz music. No, I'm just playing. They form a band and they are a group of guys who now meet weekly at Starbucks to live life together. And so now Bob is seeking to live a Christian life, but when he gets hit with another sad piece of news, I didn't really test this. He gets hit. He doesn't fall over. Because there's three other people surrounding Bob who want him to live a Christian life, who are there to support him and to come alongside him when life gets tough. Or get this one, Bob has that same sin. Remember, he couldn't get rid of it. He didn't have the willpower and the strength to put the phone away or to get past the internal struggle. But now he's in a life group. He's in a band with people who love him and who pray for him, where he confesses sin, where he practices biblical, personal discipleship. And so Bob would love to get from here to here, but he still no longer has the strength. But I tell you what those three people do. And he found healing and he found wholeness. And that is a very average sermon illustration, but some of you are visual learners, so maybe that stuck with you. And where I want us to look next is Jesus had this band. He had this group of three guys that they really intentionally live life together. From the 12, he picked three. And some of you want to focus on the nine he excluded, but I want us to focus on the three he picked because Peter, James, and John do three things with Jesus that blow my mind. The first one is when they experience these things together, it's in Matthew 17, and it's the transfiguration. And these four people, they go up to the top of the mountain and they experience revelation together. They start to learn together. 
And if you don't know the story, it goes like this. Jesus takes the three up to the mountain, and God does this incredible work. We call it the transfiguration because Jesus is transformed into something more beautiful, more radiant, and more divine than we could ever imagine. And those three got to see it. They could hardly look. They fell on their faces. They were honestly ashamed and fearful to even be there, but they got to be there. The other nine stayed at the bottom of the mountain where they stayed back at camp, but the four got to go and they learned Jesus' personality and his divinity in a way the others didn't. And they experience revelation together, or they experience desperation together. Because in Matthew 26, nine chapters later, Jesus is about to be arrested. And so he flees to the Garden of Gethsemane to get a moment where he can be with his father. And he's praying, and he's begging, and he's earnestly, he's sweating blood. You can read it. You can look it up. It's a medical condition. He is so anxious and so overwhelmed and so overworked and so just beat up, tired. And who does he bring? brings the three. Not the twelve. They didn't make the cut. He only brings three. And the three let him down, but the idea is he wanted them there for support. That in his hardest, most difficult, most trying moment, he needed them there to mourn together. They also celebrated together. They were moments of elation that the three and four of them got to celebrate together. Mark 1 or Mark 5 are both these incredible healings that Jesus does. One is Peter's mother-in-law who's sick and has a fever. She's on the verge of death and Jesus pretty much comes in and speaks a word, touches her and she's good. The other one is this girl who is dying. She's actually dying and the father has come to Jesus and begged him to come. And before Jesus even He just does this incredible thing where he brings her back to life with words. But guess who got to see that? Not the twelve, the three. He brought the three into this moment of celebration which the others didn't get to experience. And now we can focus on the other nine because you might ask, why does he add another thing? Why does he cut out a whole chunk of his community? Why couldn't they celebrate with him? Why couldn't they learn with him? Why couldn't they mourn with him? And if I needed the answer, I would tell you this. The need is for bands because a band of people is able to capture the heart and the depth of discipleship the way nothing else can. The need for bands is to capture the heart and the depth of discipleship the way nothing else can. Because when we look at small groups, remember I told you it's with. We get a whole bunch of knowledge. We get a bunch of people we get out to do life together with. And we focus on our hands. Remember, we're doing things. We're doing ministry. We're a part of it. We're learning. We're putting our feet to the ground. We're living out actual practical Christian faith. The bands becomes the heart. And it becomes the depth we so desperately need. And so he adds another thing. And he excludes the nine. And I can't tell you why he picked those three. Maybe the other nine, it just, the connection wasn't there, the relationship wasn't there, their spiritual maturity wasn't there, it just hadn't clicked yet. I don't know. We don't understand. We don't know why he picks the three. We know he had a relationship that was special with each and every one of them, but he picks them, and John Wesley describes bands as when Jesus invited them in, he invited them in for the best potential for spiritual growth. That those three were going to be the three he so deeply invests in that he would turn around and hand his bride, the church, over to them. He, John Wesley, is who we stole the pyramid from. That upside down thing that I keep talking about. 
We stole that from him. Because when he was looking at his Christian people, droves and thousands would come to him and he would teach and hundreds of people would be saved every time he spoke. And he was recognizing it wasn't good enough for them to just be saved. They needed to grow in that salvation. They needed to live out their faith. And so he created classes, which we call small groups, and he created bands. And these bands provided the best potential for spiritual growth. Honestly, it's a, it's a higher call than probably some of us in here are ready for. I don't want to exclude you. Let God speak to you if you're the person who needs to participate in this, who needs to take that step and invest in a band. But some of us were just not ready yet. It's a really high call. How John Wesley would do it is he would get the group of people together, the band, anywhere from two to five, so one on one or one, on four, one with four, and they would sit around a table or a coffee shop or whatever, and they would start with the question, each and every person, how is it with your soul? Can you answer that right now? If I were to sit across the table from you, can you answer, how is it with your soul? That question's kind of deep. It's kind of intense. It should prompt vulnerability. And in those moments, he, he says they would wait for each person to speak the true nature of their soul. Because no fakery, no lies, no judgment, none of that was present in these moments. They all got to speak exactly what their soul had felt in the last week. And in those moments, there'd be confession where people would straight up say, hey, I struggle with this. I struggle with this. And others would look at them and they would say, you know what, I struggle with that too. Let's pray about it. Let's seek the kingdom of God in it. Let's, in, let's actually live out James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If you sit here tonight and you're like, I have struggled and battled and fought and I applaud you for that fight, but I am still stuck in sin. Have you confessed? Not just to God, to others. James 5.16, so that you may be healed. So much of our world, we want healing. We want wholeness. We want life. We want joy. But we don't want intimacy and we don't want vulnerability. We don't want to sit across the table from someone and say, this is what my soul actually looks like. But Jesus did. People in Christian history did. Because on the other end of confession, there's encouragement. Hey, I was there too. Hey, I am there too. Hey, God's best for you looks like this. Hey, I'm in it with you. I will text you every day. I've been there. I will text you every day to make sure you find the healing and the wholeness you want. Over the last like 18 months, I was in a band for the very first time. I played lead guitar. I'm just kidding. I stink at all musical stuff. But I was in a band. And it was me and three guys. And we met in this room like straight behind the big screen at 6.30 every morning on Thursdays. One of the guys literally said every single morning, I hated when my alarm went off. <laughs> Who wants to get up at 6.30? But we were willing to sacrifice for it. 
We're willing to sit in that room and look each other in the face and say, you know what, this is the true nature of my soul. And those dudes, they got some stuff, man. They got some stuff going on in life and in their soul that if I told y'all, oof. But guess what, so do I. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm a work in progress. I'm not yet who I need to be. But I needed those guys. I needed them to look at me, to see me at my worst and say, you know what? I still love you. Do you know how powerful that is? Have you ever seen someone at their worst? Strip away all the the garbage, all the shields in the walls we put up to see the true nature of someone's soul and then to speak the encouragement that says, hey, I still love you. Do you know what that does to the soul? I can't put it in words. You just have to experience it. And here's where I want to make sure you're educated. There is a big threat to both of these opportunities. Whether it's small groups in communal discipleship or bands in personal discipleship, there is a big threat. The enemy has no desire to see you live out Christian faith in this way. And the biggest threat I can tell you is it's a lack of commitment and a lack of desire. Because I'll tell people, I'll preach a message like this, and some of you have already checked out in your mind because your lack of commitment is you say, I just don't have time for that. This guy's asking me to do yet another hour on top of everything I'm trying to do. And I once read in a book, it was by Wilford Bevins, and he said, people desire commitment. And I sat on that for like a week. I was like, no. No, they don't. People don't want to commit to things. We're non-committal. Nobody wants to commit to church. Nobody wants to commit to service. Nobody wants to commit to relationships or a job. We're, we're non-committal people. And then one day it finally clicked that we actually do desire to commit. We've just given our commitment to everything else. Right? Like if you were to pull out your phone and check your screen time, the average of screen time for our demographic is anywhere from like three to six hours a day. We're awake for what? Maybe 18, some of you weirdos are like 20. Six plus maybe hours of that we spend scrolling on our phones. And so then I ask, where's our commitment? It's to a piece of technology in our pocket. Or maybe we're in relationships and when I ask, where's our commitment? But we're more committed to the screen and to the Netflix account and making sure we finish that show and get that next dopamine hit from the, the, the trailer or whatever. We're more committed to our technology than we are to the cause of Christ. We're more committed to our jobs or our school. And so two hours and two hours worth of energy just feels way too much and it's a big threat. And here's what I want you to hear. I don't hate all those things. I do have Netflix account. I have watched Outer Banks. Yes, it's cheesy, but somehow I keep watching it. But am I more committed to that than I am to Christ? Am I trading something that's okay for something that could be great? Otherwise, people lack desire. It feels scary. It feels intrusive. 
We feel vulnerable, intimate, open, exposed. There's no safety in this group. What if I say something and they they don't like me anymore? What if what he promised me that should be love and encouragement is actually regret and backstabbing? You got to try. You got to get people around you who you can trust, where you can be open with them. You got to build a relationship where you can get to these things. Don't just walk out in the foyer and be like, yo, he told me to get in a band, so here's all my stuff. The person's going to be like, you're weird. We're not trying to be weird. We're trying to get healthy, trying to get well, get in a band. And so here's where I want to finish. Jesus modeled personal and communal discipleship in a group of three and a group of 12. You have the chance this semester to do both of those. I know it can be scary. I've sat in your seat. But I know what it can feel like too. I know the health and the healing. And trust me, it's so worth it. But if you don't want to trust me, you can trust this guy. Izat, you want to play that video? Hi, guys. My name is Sam Van Orman. um, And I just wanted to share my testimony with you um, concerning Bible study, a small group here at Oasis. Um, So going back a few years... Um, I had gone to a couple Bible study groups um, my freshman and sophomore year, um, and ever growing or growing up, I was a Catholic, um, and church for me was kind of a, a necessity, but it, it wasn't something that I was actively pursuing. Um, but then I was faced with a, a pretty difficult situation about a year ago. Um, I, I went through a, a pretty tough uh, breakup with a girl that I've been dating for about three and a half years, um, and kind of hit rock bottom and didn't know where to go from there. Um, so one, one of my good buddies got me hooked up with uh, a small group here at Oasis. Um, that definitely transformed my life. Um, I was opening up to these guys more than I would my, my parents or my family, um, confiding in them, um, telling them things about the things I was going through and, and where I wanted to be um, a year down the road. This is probably the first time in my life that um, I had act- actively pursued a relationship with Christ. Um, I was connected with different different podcasts and listening to different sermons. I was um, getting more connected with the Word and, and confiding in, in brothers in Christ that, that actively or that truly cared about who I was as a person and wanted to see uh, spiritual growth in my life. Um, throughout this, this difficult time in my life, it's not that I didn't have <clears throat> people that were there to support me. I had friend groups, I had family, um, but this was different because these guys were focused on, on Jesus and pursuing a relationship with Him. Um, they definitely pointed me in the right direction and good examples of, of who to follow and how to, how to pursue a relationship with Christ in that respect. So I definitely wouldn't be where I am today without those guys. And I, I definitely encourage all you who are hesitant about joining a small group um, to go ahead and do so because it can change your life in ways that uh, you'll never be able to imagine. And so if you don't trust me, trust him. If you don't trust him, trust the word of God. And so they're going to put the small group link back up on the screen. And I know 200 plus of you have already signed up for groups. That's incredible. That's a number to praise God about. But maybe you're a person who you went to the group for the first time and you're like, I don't know if this is for me. The group's too big. The leader's weird. The other people in the group are weird. I don't know what it was, but go back. Try it again. Commit and sacrifice. Or if you're here and week in and week out, you've heard me rag and tag about small groups. Maybe tonight's your night. Sign up for a group, 
get involved in community, and let God do a work in your life. So I'll pray, and then you guys can do that, and then Jaina's going to come up with the team, and they'll start the song. So, Father, thank you tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you just call us to live in personal and communal discipleship, that you have modeled for us a way that is so far beyond what I could conceive or I could cook up, but God, there's something special here that when your son came, he modeled this perfectly. And so now we just try and be faithful to stand in his footsteps and it will be a bumpy ride, God, but we trust you. We trust you that these relationships, this time, this energy, it's worth it. It's worth committing to your community. It's worth diving into discipleship. So God, I pray you'd equip your people to do exactly what you need them to do. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.